pleasure to introduce Joe Sussi. He's a PhD candidate in the history of art and architecture with a focal area in environmental studies at the University of Oregon. Joe earned an MA in art history at the University of Utah in 2017 and a BA in art history at Case Western Reserve University in 2013. Joe's interested in the art of the Americas with an emphasis on contemporary environmental art practices, post-nature, eco-critical art history, land use politics, nuclear aesthetics, and truth formation. He won the two, uh, 2021 Marion Donnelly Book Prize for his paper, Passage of the Field, Smudge Studio, and the Nuclear Legacy Landscape. He has a forthcoming article co-authored with Ray Root titled, Digging for the Future, Aesthetics of Growth and Care from the 1960s to Today, which, which was presented at the 2020 Making Do Conference. Joe's 2018 article, Living with Our Toxic Legacy, Parafictional Practice and the National Toxic Land Labor Conservation Service was published in Hemisphere Visual Cultures of the Americas. As an OHC 2023-24 dissertation fellow, Joe's been working on his project titled Sensing Toxicity, Art, Environmental Justice, and Contaminated Geographies, 1980s to the Present. Please join me in welcoming Joseph. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Paul, and um, thank you everyone for being here. It's such an honor for so many people to come out and listen to my talk and about my project and what I've been doing for a while now. Um, and just wanted to express gratitude to the OHC for giving me this time as well. It's making this possible. So today I'm going to give a very brief introduction to the larger scope of my dissertation and then go a little bit deeper into one of the chapters um, that I've been working on um, this summer and throughout this quarter during my fellowship. I'm going to read off of a script for the whole time. Um, I think it'll be just under 40 minutes. It'll probably be a little bit under that, but um, yeah, I will get started. Hope you enjoy. So my dissertation, Sensing Toxicity, Art, Environmental Justice, and Contaminated Geographies, 1980s to the Present, examines how contemporary American artists Kim Abeles, Karen Bolander, and Beatrice Santiago Munoz use bodily scenting to make toxicity legible. Through material and object-based analysis of the respective projects, Mountain Wedge, Raw Smoke Soap, and Pharmacopoeia, I argue that toxins in various forms from airborne particulate matter in Los Angeles to the landscapes poisoned by military testing in Puerto Rico um, significantly transformed artistic production over the past 40 years. Toxicity's unique material properties, including the capability to embed itself within DNA, their micromolecular scale, their ability on the one hand, optically obscure environments on, uh, the, and on the other, remain invisible to unmediated eyes, present a wide range of challenges to representing and comprehending their local and global effects. To grapple with these challenges, I demonstrate how artists adapted their work through bodily ways of knowing, which I describe as a form of bodily sensing, to make their own vulnerability and the vulnerability of their communities visible. Attention to embodiment through bodily sensing counters an otherwise simplified and abstracted notion of toxicity provided by some technological devices, such as those used to record airborne particulate matter or the presence of synthetics in drinking water. By understanding the body as a sensor, the artists under discussion explore how the visual politics of toxicity inform its material reality. 
My first chapter um, focuses on photographer and multimedia artist Kim Abley's early work Mountain Wedge, uh, made from 1985 to 1987, and how the project seeks to explore the limits of photography as an effective method of representing bodily experiences of toxicity. From February 1985 to March 1986, Abelise took 274 photographs from her studio in downtown Los Angeles in hopes of capturing only a small wedge of the San Gabriel Mountain. Smog from industrial production and automobile use made photographing the mountain difficult, if not impossible. For Abelise, the absence of the San Gabriel Mountain did not simply disrupt a visual experience, but eroded a sensibility of place. To eventually photograph the mountain wedge, Abelese walked 16 and a half miles as the crow flies to the foot of the mountain. Photographs of the mountain obscured by the smog and the arduous physical trek undertaken by the artist collapsed into a techno-corporeal sensing of pollution within Los Angeles. With developments in environmental justice scholarship in mind, I show how Abelese's work marks a significant disruption in how toxicity and nature were represented and understood in the late 1980s. I argue that the overwhelming presence of toxicity, as represented in Abelese's photographs, meets a tipping point where the logic of solely visualizing pollution breaks down. To overcome visual representation shortcomings, bodily ways of knowing are introduced in the artist's sculptural and performative pieces. The second chapter, Sensory Remediation, Karen Bolander's Raw Ass Milk Soap, and the Aesthetics of Cleaning, considers how the Oregon-based artist has collaborated with multi-species companions since the early 2000s to contend with the ways harmful toxins persistently reside within bodies. Her collaborators range from microbi microbial beings in dirt and food to her work with the lineage of spotted-ass donkeys. The central focus of the chapter is raw smoke soap, um, made from both the artist's breast milk and the milk of a spotted-ass donkey after the two traversed through portions of the American South, heavily polluted by industrial production. The soap not only synthesizes multi-species materials, more importantly, it transforms multiple bodies' hyperaccumulation of chemicals into an object. Despite soap's association with removing impurities, raw smoke soap does not seek to literally clean toxic geographies. To the contrary, I explore these tensions by situating the artwork alongside environmental remediation projects, such as the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010, to reveal how bodily sensing can uniquely reveal the remnants of toxicity even after remediation. I argue that cleaning and the production of toxicity are interconnected processes and that a remediation facilitated by attention to the more than human offer one such possible way of imagining an alternative relationship. The third and final, final body chapter, Purifying Paradise, Sensing Out the Manchineal and Beatriz Santiago Munoz's Pharmacopoeia, considers the work of the Puerto Rican filmmaker and video artist whose work over the past two decades responds to the ongoing colonial control of the islands of Puerto Rico by the United States government. This chapter focuses on the artist's film Pharmacopoeia from 2012, revealing how the sensing of toxicity is culturally determined. In the film, a time traveler from the future attempts to find the Manchineal tree, considered the most poisonous plant in the world, which is disappearing from the Puerto Rican landscape. The Manchineal tree's form of toxicity, threatening to sellers, is eradicated and replaced by another in the form of military facilities and testing, which threatens indigenous people, plants, and animals. As a result, settler and indigenous forms of bodily sensing produce contradictory information on what is toxic to the island. Mm -hmm. The artist's auditory and visual recordings of erasure in her films capture the colonial shaping of Puerto Rico as an endemic vision of paradise through the displacement of the island's toxic plants. I argue that Munoz's films imagine a future alongside the emergent and disappearing ecologies of toxicity 
that constitute Puerto Rico, resisting moves to purify the island of being labeled as toxic by colonizers. So each chapter aims to consider art making within the destabilized context of toxicity. Different sources of toxicity see different approaches across the body of work. However, each demonstrates how visibility on its own is a limiting factor when we seek to understand the impacts of toxins. Too easily is pollution abstracted into logistics and quantities visualized solely through data and extracted from the context of bodily experience. Too frequently have the presence of toxins been denied because they cannot be seen. Since the 1980s, artists and environmental justice activists have sought to demonstrate the importance of imagining and utilizing hybrid methodologies to apprehend toxicity that recognize bodily symptoms as legitimate. So um, this, this kind of preface to the, the dissertation, I'm going to move into looking much more closer at um, the first chapter, um, Lost in Smog, Airborne Pollution and Visual Breakdown in Kim Abley's Mountain Wedge series. On November 30th, 1991, Catherine Cave, a reporter for the Oregon, Orange County Register, playfully laments, it's finally come to this, smog as art. Cave has been driving around Orange and Los Angeles counties looking at a new series um, by the Los Angeles-based artist Kim Abelis, who in 1991 was in the process of making seven site-specific artworks that created images out of airborne particulate matter commissioned by the California Bureau of Automotive Repair and the Department of Consumer Affairs across Southern California. Called Smog Collectors, Abelis creates the images by placing a stencil cut to look like organs, automobile engines, gas masks, flowers, as well as portraits of people and landscapes on top of plexiglass or paper. Afterward, Abelis leaves the work outside for a period of time, sometimes as long as 40 days, where particulate matter falls from the sky and accumulates on the surface. Cave wasn't the only one surprised by Abelis, who one reporter dubbed the quote smog queen, and another described her work as a series of dirty pictures. But beyond the puns and innuendo irresistible to art critics and column writers was something quite alluring. Transforming smog into art seemed to tilt the public imaginary about its relationship to toxicity and its several decades long battle against airborne pollution in Los Angeles, which had been hard fought by environmental activists eagerly pressuring for more protection. If we were making art out of smog, something, someone has got to recognize the absurdity or its oddly sensitive and fragile beauty. Abley's work, on the one hand, significantly contributes to a wide body of environmental art practices that since the 1960s have been raising environmental and ecological consciousness through their work. However, raising awareness was not the only goal of Abley's and her contemporaries. Cave's wry statement that we finally come to a moment where smog can be art expresses confoundment in the idea that smog and other forms of pollution can be thought of creatively. Doing such work of thinking about smog creatively may offer, I hope to show, an altogether alternative way of thinking and feeling with toxins, a way that starts first and foremost from how exposure to toxins shapes the everyday experiences of individuals variously and disproportionately. This chapter explores how Abelis came to make, quote, smog as art by looking back to the decade prior when Abelis moved from a renovated grain silo outside Athens, Ohio to smog cover California. At the time, Abelis moved to LA, five days of every week in the year presented unhealthy AQI levels. That is levels where the air quality index was over 100. The key series of work um, I am looking at in this period is the Mountain Wedge series. 
which over the course of two years from 1985 to 1987, Abelis produced an incredibly large and varied body of work, including hundreds of photographs, two books, a dozen sculptures, and a 16 and a half mile walk slash performance piece, all responding to the fact that smog pollution prevented the San Gabriel mountain range from being seen clearly from her downtown Los Angeles studio. Mm -hmm. The project started out as an attempt to photograph a clear image of a wedge of the mountain, which on a day without any pollution, one could see from downtown LA. Over 14 months, Abelis took 274 photographs, and then at time was never able to see the wedge clearly. After the photograph was, series was taken, Abelis made over a dozen of what she describes as footnote sculptures to the photographs, which experimented with different means of presenting the observations made from the photographs, often recontextualizing her data. Over time, Abelis develops work that more directly engages with her own body being exposed to toxins, culminating in a performance-based walk to the base of the San Gabriel Mountain, spanning 16 and a half miles and taking over two, 10 hours that doubled as a performative prolonged exposure on a highly polluted day in Los Angeles when the AQI was 200. This, what I'm calling visual breakdown of Abelie's work, did not cheapen the value of seeing the mountain when she got there, but served as a method to investigate and reconcile with how pollution exceeds the limits of visuality when it is felt firsthand. The Mountain Wedge series ultimately goes far beyond making toxicity visible, qualities often associated with such eco-art works, but demonstrates a methodology of sensing toxicity, of apprehending how toxicity reverberates into the total body sensorium. Part one, toxic delirium. Abelies was born in 1952 in Richmond Heights, Missouri, a suburb just outside St. Louis, and spent parts of her childhood growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In 1974, she graduated with a BFA in painting from Ohio University. While completing her degree, she and her husband, Ken, moved into a converted grain silo where they would live for several years developing what would now be described as DIY projects and instructions. At the age of 24, she remarkably published her first book, Crafts, Cookery, and Country, um, Country Living, which collected the place-based knowledge Abelis had learned over the years. The introduction provides some interesting details that would go to inform Abelis' later working practice. Crafts, Cookery, and Country Living is a collection of processes involving arts, crafts, and natural or manufacturing materials. It is an introduction to activities of the senses and new experiences to stimulate further involvement in artistic and living endeavors. Nature and the bountiful countryside are woven to, throughout these pages, directly or indirectly. Indirectly because the arts we enjoy are an arrangement of the movements and correlations surrounding us directly when one makes tangible use of the treasures outdoors. There can be no exaggerations about nature's beauty of design, function, and delightful details. Absorbing the open air, earth, and life is enriching and full of thoughtful intrigue. <coughs> the activities of the senses is a quality that resonates across Abelie's work. The comprehensive guidebook to country living designed to mediate readers to not just see the world around them differently, but to actively incorporate it through the way they live. Crafts, cookery, and country living serves an aesthetic treatise for Abelis in many ways. And amidst the recipes for crafting indulgent beverages, handmade rugs, gifts for loved ones, and my favorite a warm cat pouch for the winter season, is Abelis' astute observational skills that keenly perceive ruptures and convergences between the worlds of the natural and the manufactured. This is most clearly seen in entries on found object printing and handmade clock, clocks, 
where materials of uppercase N nature include the detritus of industrialization. Many of these pieces would appear in future work with found object printing being mirrored in the already mentioned smog collectors, as well as a remarkable similarity to a series of clocks you made as part of the Mountain Wedge series. These activities of the senses and their ability to, quote, make tangible use of the treasure outdoors would operate in a new context when in 1978, Abelis moved to Los Angeles to pursue an MFA. Work of Abelis in this period often reflected in the harsh working conditions the artist was seeing in the sweatshops within her neighborhood of Broadway and Second Avenue at the heart of downtown LA and just blocks from the city's government buildings generically named Civic Plaza. Concurrently with Abelis's move was the growing attention to smog. Newspapers like the Los Angeles Times were frequently reporting on smog pollution that plunged the city into extreme hazardous conditions. On September 14, 1979, journalist Richard E. Meyer put great effort to describe the intense bodily symptoms of high pollution days. Quote, eye-searing, throat-burning smog smothered the Los Angeles area in a bourbon-colored blanket Thursday, sending scores of persons to hospitals with respiratory trouble and forcing school children to stay indoors out of the noxious air. However, for many, it was not common knowledge that the bourbon-colored blanket was harmful, but was instead part of the coastal region's unique weather phenomena, fog swooning over the city. Abelis recounts her experiences trying to convince people the opposite. My leap to Los Angeles in 1978 placed me in the middle of the smog. The buildings stained with soot felt familiar because I grew up in Pittsburgh at a time when the steel mills still operated. A book in our living room mesmerized me as a kid because of a particular photo of 1940s Pittsburgh. The caption explained that it was taken in the morning but the street was lit by lamps because of the heavy, dark atmosphere. Nevertheless, in Los Angeles, I frequently complained about the way the air ached in my lungs and left the metal taste in my mouth and attacked my skin with its microscopic particulates. I would argue with people in coffee shops about the smog, and they were insistent it was fog. We surrender to our surroundings, and the mind is a powerful healer with its wish to see a blue sky. Part two of Visual Breakdown. Abley's first piece, Responding to Environmental Conditions Created by Smog, was a three-piece photograph series called Fashioning a Smog Mask, made in 1981. In the photographs, we see Abley sitting in a chair while in the process of taping a camera around her mouth. Covering the camera into a smog mask may draw connections between the scene and the felt. Abley's, in her interview with me, spoke of her camera at the time as a sibling, or as an appendage even, an appendage, sorry. At the time, Abelis took other self-portraits with the camera taped to other parts of her body, as if wishing to be able to see from somewhere else other than her eye or her mind. Abelis' photographic process then should be read as one that is embodied, where Abelis' body, body underlie and inform her photographs as much as the images seen. These um, concerns would dominate the Mountain Wedge series, which started first with the photographic series. Oh, I'm at 34 minutes already. Okay, let me see this up. From, um, from February 26, 1985 to March 17, 1986, Abelis took 274 photographs facing northeast from her fire escape with the purpose of photographing a wedge of the San Gabriel Mountain. Each photograph includes the time taken and the date. There are minor differences in the position of the camera, but otherwise the composition of each is the same. Most of them are black and white, with the exception of just a handful in color. On the left side of the photograph is the Civic Center Plaza building, which still stands. As viewers, we, now, we may not really know what to look for across the photographs available to us, 
The point of them isn't entirely obvious until we look at several. In the majority of photographs I have seen, the mountain's range is, is almost entirely blocked by smog. Um, I have arranged some um, in order just to flip through um, to look at. Just go through a few of them. All 274 photographs were displayed as part of a large-scale installation at the 1986 exhibition Extensions, a group show including Abelie's Michael Asher, Louis Lawyer, and Michelle Stewart at Occidental College in LA. An elaborate mount for the photographs was created for the exhibition in the shape of an enlarged camera bellows, an accordion-like attachment for cameras that allow photographs to keep close-up objects in focus, constructed by the artists out of painted paper, canvas, and marbleized wood. The camera bellows sculptural component is quite large with the dimensions of 15 feet deep, 8 feet tall, and 6.5 feet wide. Viewers enter the piece and the matter light would pass through the lens where inside you walk and the photographs of the mountain would surround you. At the back of the bellows tunnel is a small lens that viewers can look through, which shows an inverted view of a nine-foot oil painting of the mountain wedge painted by Abelis suspended behind the installation piece. The camera bellows installation emphasizes the bodily experience of physically entering the space of the camera, where Abelis consumes the viewer in an atmosphere of both image and imaging technologies. Oddly, the clearest representation of the mountain we get is a painting created by the artist at the back of the installation that viewers can see through. In a photograph showing the artist painting the mountain, we see her walking off of one of her photographs of the mountain from her apartment while using a magnifying glass in her right hand, a paintbrush in her left. Painting from photographs is not an unusual practice. However, it is implied that Abelis cannot clearly see the mountain wedge in the photograph she is painting from due to the smog. The painting of the wedge is more prophetic, something yet to be seen, or only once was, rather than being actually present. Placing viewers in the camera space parallels that of the camera as smog mask photograph series, where concerns about the body and relationship to the processes of visualizing converge. The emphasis on making the visual experience of smog and body seems to be directed at those who insist that smog is fog. In the earlier quote I read, Abley's recounts her observations that people refuse to acknowledge this smog. We surrender to our surroundings, and the mind is a powerful healer with its wish to see a blue sky. To represent smog visually on its own fed into the very beliefs that Abley's was rejecting, particularly with how seeing and the understanding of pollution were interconnected processes. Seeing by way of the mountain wedge could provide the antidote, but only if viewers could acknowledge the feelings beyond wishes for blue skies, such as the symptoms experienced due to exposure to airborne pollution, were as a result of particulate matter. Furthermore, if people could see the mountain, the smog pollution would be gone. There are other reasons that the mountain is an apt subject for Abelis's quest. San Gabriel Mountains are eroding, a process which has only begun to accelerate throughout the 20th century as a result of increased wildfires. In the 1988 essay, Los Angeles Against the Mountains, environmental writer John McPhee writes provocatively of the gargantuan efforts undertaken to hold back landslides that bury communities stretch around the base of the San Gabriel Mountains. The unique relationship between LA and these mountains speaks towards um, the larger theme in McPhee's collection of essays titled The Control of Nature and how large-scale engineering projects have altered ecological and geologic systems for the purposes of urban development across the United States. Seen from downtown LA, smog blocks the view of the mountains, further deepening the conceptual separation between the two, 
between nature and between culture, despite the mountain slowly creeping closer through its gradual spilling into the valley. The mountain's striking physical proximity is ultimately masked by smog, creating a smoky veil that encloses the urban environment. Seeing the mountain thus affords the possibility of holding the geologic force of the San Gabriels alongside the urban space of LA, together that the condition of pollution continue to hold separate in the visual experience of the city. This experience is echoed uh, by Abeles in a piece of writing where she reminisces on her deep desire to clearly see the wedge, um, tightening, waiting for the wedge. After telling friends, fellow artists, and writers about the mountain wedge, they were on the lookout for it. It was not unusual for me to receive calls in the early hours of the morning telling me I should look out the window. Have you looked out the window today? You're not going to get a clearer day than this. You missed it. It was so clear you could have cut it with a knife. On the days when the weather was good and the sky was its bluest and the smog level was down and the air seemed fresh, I would get calls like that. For my watch post, I continued to tell people, it's not what I'm looking for. I know what I'm looking for. It needs to be clearer. I am not simply looking to see the mountain, but to see it with crystal clarity so that it merges in balance with the buildings so much closer, the buildings which hold the massive bulge of earth between. I listened to the weather report more and more frequently. I listened for the day when they report that it is crystal clear outside. The photographs by Abelis seem to reveal as much as they obscure. What are we meant to see if we can't see it? Within the bellows of the installation, we are to look for a mountain that is invisible to us and to the camera. What I find so interesting about these photos is how they are in many ways illegible. And I think read alone as strictly visual representations of toxicity fail to do so. Abley's goal to photograph a wedge and her failure to do so is to me a remarkable exercise to understand what vision cannot do when trying to communicate the effects of toxicity. How do the conventions of landscape representation and painting and photography of um, genres that Abelis is engaging with across her work inform the legibility and understanding of toxicity and environment? Two historic landscape representations stand out to me. Um, Claude Monet's 1872 impression sunrise and the photographs of the 1930s Dust Bowl taken by Arthur Rothstein. The watershed work impression sunrise by the French artists along being credited with naming the now famous movement, displays Monet's unique plein air technique to capture the fleeting atmospheric effects of light and his ability to uniquely suspend fleeting moments in a state of contemplation. As visual studies scholar Nicolas Mirzoff has astutely observed, the beauty of Monet's sunrise is the glowing red orb that penetrates the thick haze that clouds the port of Le Havre, an effect produced through, the, through an atmosphere loaded with particulate matter produced by industrial pollution. Monet's impressionist style unintentionally or not documented the seeding, environmental and aesthetic transformations the world was undergoing as a result of extractive capitalism. Toxicity had made its mark on the horizon line, a fact Abelie struggled to capture in her mountain wedge photographs. Though Abelie's documentation calls to be read in relationship to the Farm Security Administration project to photograph the effects of the Dust Bowl that ravaged um, United States prairies throughout the 1930s. 
The first photographer hired, Arthur Rothstein, was emblematic of the FSA's photography team leader, Roy Stryker's guiding philosophy of a, quote, passion for the use and perpetuation of photojournalism and documentary photography toward the betterment of society. The spaces and subjects of Rothstein photographed, such as this image of a man and his two children fighting against a bludgeoning dust storm that occurred in 1936 in Cameroon County, Oklahoma, were effective to how the storm visually abstracted the landscape into an atmospheric environment. This photograph in particular captures how the storm disrupts preconceptions of scale within the environment, erases the horizon line's vanishing point, turning the sky and the ground into a singular surface. Rothstein's photographs were capturing what many of us now may recognize as what Rob Nixon describes as a form of fast violence, sensational events with clear evidence of physical destruction. Slow violence, the accretive form that slowly builds over time, but is far less sensational and less easily captured through images, is the type Abeles was attempting to make legible. Throughout the photographs and writing of, of For the Mountain Wedge, I sense frustration in Abeles as an artist and as a visual communicator. Conversations with her friends are interpreted as them just not getting it. That is not to say that the work is bad, far from it, but that it exceeds so well in engaging with the tension between visibility and invisibility within the representation of toxicity within the landscape. Monet's and Rothstein's representations benefited from sensational visual ruptures that defied expectation, whereas Abeles was trying to some degree to reinsert something slowly gradually disappeared until it was no longer missed. The photographs um, and the camera bellows were not the only pieces made, but spurred a wide body of what the artist describes as footnote sculptures. These works represent the data collected from the photographs in a different format, as is the case for a series of clocks made in 1986 that organize all the time she took photographs on a clock. The pieces also honed in, an, in on odd details gathered from the photographs that explored layer readings concerning themes of memory and obstructive viewing, as is the case in Memory Box and Obstruction to the Wedge, both from 1987. In the former, a cut piece of cheesecloth blocks the view of a photograph of the mountain. In Obstruction to the Wedge, Abeles isolates a series of photographs taken during a period of time where wiring from renovations happening onto the apartment building Abeles lived in blocked her view of the corridor on Broadway. Such pieces continue to establish the totalizing 24-7 effects of Smaug's abstracting qualities that Abeles obsessively details. But similar limitations to the photograph's inability to make the mountain seen rippled throughout the work. Invisible camera from 1987 overlays the outline of the wedge with a 35 millimeter camera that, like the camera billows installation and the fashioning uh, smog mask series that merge bodies and imaging devices together, merge the camera with the mountain, both struggling to be seen in the photographic images and the sculptures. And the kind of last part, peak exposure. The footnote sculptures took an extreme corporeal turn in the later parts of, the, of 1987 when Abeles had become determined to see the San Gabriel Mountains. She decided that she would walk as the crow flies to the base of the mountain, mountain a 16-and-a-half-mile trek from downtown L.A. into Chinatown across an abandoned railroad just south of Elysian Park, over the L.A. River, up into Highland Park, and through the urban sprawling of Pasadena and Altadena residencies. 
To prepare, Ibelis made the pentapede that she would use to measure her stride so that she could record how far she exactly traveled as she winded through roads and backyards. Uh, Abelese began monitoring air quality information reported by the LA Times so that when she did walk, it would be on a day with a stage one AQI, meaning it would be between 150 and 200. And on September 10th, 1987, Abelese walked for 10 hours from her downtown studio apartment at 2nd and Broadway to the bottom of the mount at the cross section of Windfall and Loma Alta. The mountain wedge was not clearly visible and she stood at its base. These, this summer, I met with Abelis in Los Angeles to talk about the Mountain Wedge series with her and to visit some of the key sites. Abelis hadn't been back to the base of the San Gabriel since 1987. She visited the spot for the first time since the day before we met to see what she remembered. She told me about a woman that ran out of her house with a bottle of Coke to give Abelis, who was bloodied and bruised from the pilgrimage to the wedge. She caught a bus home after her drink and she told me that the bus driver, after seeing her in a rough condition, told her the fare was on him. Just prior to the pilgrimage, Abelis made her first smog collector, a stencil in the shape of the wedge, formed from one month of smog placed on her fire escape, likely right below where the camera would have been that she used to photograph the wedge years prior. The idea came to her when walking outside a neighbor of Abelis pointed to the smog and soot accumulating on the hood of a car, like tears falling from the sky, the man said, so the story goes. It was indeed smog as art, even then as ashes covered them. The Mountain Wedge series is a reflection on seeing, but also on how to contextualize pollution in such a way that its form can be acutely felt as byproducts of human action. In the adhesive surface of paper and plexiglass, Abelis found her fleshy conduit, her exposure preserved in the image of the wedge. A remarkable smog collector um, was made several years later, um, this time in the image of the campaign's Alasco, bulls restlessly being captured in movement, not dislike the mountain's untrackability. The piece was made in 1992. It was made from 12 days of smog and two days of smoke from the Los Angeles uprisings in response to the brutal beating of Rodney King. The image's strong presence from such a short exposure time, in large part due to the uprisings. Another blurring, another merging between material and image. When I visited Los Angeles this summer, I too wanted to see the wedge. I tried finding a way into Abelie's former apartment building, which still stands, but was rebuffed from entering. However, I found a parking garage that had a similar angle and height to the studio apartment. I leaned out with hand outstretched, snapping photographs pointing northeast in hopes of seeing a glimpse of the wedge, one still only faintly seen behind fog. I walked the first and last quarter parts of the pilgrimage following the directions provided by Abelis, and when I got to the base, I thought about a piece Abelis dreamed of making. Quote, I imagine taking a hundred people to stand directly in front of the mountain, and we would wave our arms frantically to push away that very last bit of smog standing between ourselves and the mountain. Once a plan was considered to place huge fans at the mountaintops to reroute the smog, a hundred of us would act out the part imagined by engineers. Wave your arms as quickly as you can, back and forth in any pat pattern that will make the air circulate. Thank you. Thank you.
questions for Joe. Yeah. What's the significance? Uh, I mean, the, uh, for the role, say, Kim uh, Abelis played uh, in uh, either increasing awareness about the, the in environmental pollution or the, I mean, why? Why you yeah. like her as? The yeah. So. Um, Right after making, so she started making these small collective pieces in the early 1990s. And the first piece I started with, she was commissioned by the Bureau of Automotive Repair and the Department of uh, Commissioner Affairs. And basically, this was a large campaign um, to disseminate information about the importance of um, at getting your small, your um, car checked for like getting small checks, putting the right equipment on it. She kind of moved into a more activist role at this point where she developed environmental activities books, would frequently go to schools to teach um, like lectures and, and give like student classroom workshops about how to make smog collectors, like tell your parents about smog. And it really dominated like her career. I mean, it still does in many ways, but like she made so many practices throughout the 1990s that was funded by like by both these kind of automobile institutions but also by kind of larger environmental activist institutions as well okay, but in your photo in your i mean artifact you you have shown seems to be they all mo mostly come from before the 2000 year yeah. 2000 so what happened after i mean what happened in the last 20 years for her so what's happened like what's the case now in, in terms of her i mean uh, activity in of her uh, somehow, I mean, the, the well, she continues to make small collectors, but they change in context. Um, they will, you know, she's received a lot of requests to do ones that are responding to forest fires. Um, she isn't particularly keen, for some reason, to kind of use like use this method for that for for those purposes. She she's thinking quite differently now. She focuses a lot on kind of the color of the sky in many pieces, thinking of mediating the view of the landscape. But, you know, small collectors, I think, they, they are such, they're such a big part of her career that it's hard, I think, to separate, like, the continuation of her work from it. And she still produces many different versions of it in different contexts. There's one that was, she did in London, um, with a family whose um, son died, and she kind of recorded airborne particulate matter in that area, and was kind of advocating for a lot more kind of regulations in in the UK. So there are, you know, there are other things. There are many. She's done a lot of other activist projects as well. It's not just on smog too. Yeah. Yeah. How do you become interested in her, and then the other two? artists that you're also working with? Um, so I became interested in Kim Abley's work when I visited the archives of the Center for Art and Envi Environment in Nevada, uh, Reno, Nevada, the Nevada Museum of Art. Um, uh, Abley's had, right when I got there, just kind of given their, her archive. And I was aware of her smog collectors, but this piece, the Mountain Wood series, was very new. I hadn't heard about it before. And it's something that is not presented. She has written multiple books, both about her career and kind of presenting her information. It doesn't really appear in them as much. It's not a something that is facing forward so much as much as the small collectors, despite it being this kind of origin of where this type of methodology came from. Um, 
Cameron Bollinger, I um, I know, I met, and I kind of have, have kind of participated in multiple pieces of her, and I've kind of have created a personal relationship with her and have learned about her work that way from seeing her work first here in Eugene at Eugene Contemporary Anti-Aesthetic. And my interest in Beatrice Santiago Munoz uh, extends from my um, mother's family who are from Puerto Rico. So I'm kind of interested in thinking about how do cultural definitions of toxicity, and I felt that to be an interesting way to kind of capstone the project of thinking more about not just like we have these material definitions, but how do we kind of approach toxicity at a more cultural level? Yeah. Hi, So thank you so much for the presentation. Um, this is very, very exciting. And this is probably a little bit broader than your um, focus for the OHC project, but I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the choice of the word toxic toxicity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, I, I feel that it's so apt, but um, you know, rather than poisonous or polluted or, you know, the toxic idea. Yeah. Um, it's a hard choice. Um, <laughs> because there are many people um, like John Gamber who writes about what is cultural toxins or material pollutants, or it's the other way around, but he makes this very distinct use of the word of which one it is. Um, Max LeBoron really is specific about saying pollution and uses toxicity in a different form. I use toxicity because I think it's very scientifically charged, and I think it has this baked-in meaning that is rooted in a type of like scientific definition. I also think it lends itself to like a more mutable engagement in the example of like, of like toxic plants or poisonous plants, I use them. Inter- I use poisonous though often interchangeably at times. Um, but I think overall, toxicity. I think of it in this kind of scientific milieu that I see artists interjecting it and kind of um, expanding on that. I want it to really be in that sphere. I want it to be part of that conversation, and I don't want it to just be. A kind of out like a non-scientific approach. So I, I I really think that these artists are doing a lot of scientific mm-hmm. research that is contributing to the like a a science so-called scientific um, definition or destabilizing an objective definition of toxicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Megan. I have two questions. If that's not too green. <laughs> the first one is: Would you mind just explaining? like the process of how the smoke collectors work. I think I don't get it. Yes. And then the second one, or I can just ask the question after. Okay. The second question is, and I'm asking this sort of selfishly because I am grappling with this in my own work, but um, you're doing such interdisciplinary work, like in, the methods I think that you're approaching your research and also like the ideas um, and materials that you're thinking about and with. And I'm, I mean, the only art historians that I like know well are you and Ray, and <laughs> it seems like you do like a lot of ethnographic work mm-hmm. in, and I don't know if that's common, but I'm, and then yeah, like the sort of scientific expertise that perhaps you need to be across to be creating these arguments. I'm curious just like how you navigate that and to what extent it's just like self-directed and intuitive and also how do you understand the scope of what you're doing and where the limits of your expertise are mm-hmm. like how, when do you feel comfortable saying like <laughs> it's okay for me to not know that yeah um so how are smog collectors made so basically um 
she, you can do it in multiple ways. You can do it with a sheet of paper and you cut out, you have basically a piece of paper and then you cut out a stencil that you put on top of it. And then on that bottom paper, the negative image of the stencil is then placed onto the paper. And it's just, it's let outside for up to, you know, some are 30 days, some are 40 days, some are 60 days, some are 12 days. They range in timelines and they produce a different um, gradient of exposure. There's also, she also uses plexiglass, which is obviously a more adhesive surface than, than paper um, that, I, that she has exhibited in different contexts. So she uses different types in different ways. The paper is super easy for teaching to having it be used by many people and like you can do it in a classroom with students and you don't need to go find plexiglass. Um, the plexiglass creates a very, I think, it's a more permanent, not permanent permanent, but like a more stable image that um, are exhibited at the um, California Science Center as well, um, amongst other collections. So that's basically how it's made. Is that? You got Does it, you got she it. fix it afterwards? Does she put something on it to make sure that the the smog doesn't come off the paper? Does she like cover it? With she a, covers it um, with more with like either glass or or plexiglass. It depends mm -hmm. on where it's going. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that are in the California Science Center are covered in glass, um, and the that one month smog collector and the image of the mountain wedge is also covered in glass. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm sure there have been many. There's one that is just exposed, actually. Um, but I don't know. She recreates, it's an image of her. Like, it's called the Smog Collector, and she's collecting, like, particulates in the air falling down in her shirt. Um, but, and that one, I saw it at um, Sacramento State University, their gallery, and that was not covered. So that one was just open. Um, but to the question of this kind of, interesting question about methodology. Um, yeah, um, I, I think like ethnographic or kind of fieldwork practices is something that I didn't know is something that you really could do until I read kind of the work of Emily, of Emily Scott's work and like, cause that is so fieldwork heavy and that really kind of like informed that that's what I wanted to do and that's what I started doing and throughout my master's was spending a lot of time just being at these different sites that artists talked about. I think it was just relative to the work of artists that I'm interested in. And I've kind of been under, coming to understand that more and more is that they're begging you to go to these sites in a way and they want you to go to them. That's why they're doing this work. Not everyone has the, the, the ability to do so, but it's kind of almost very different in a way compared to like the land artists where it was very much almost like you couldn't really go there. This it's things have changed so I think there's a degree of accessibility that makes it possible to go to them that I really like and it it kind of builds into this idea of sensing that I think about greatly with my work and how to think about works of art in a non-visual way that is only really possible by being there and not it's not just being there in front of the work but being at the locations that the artists do work about um regarding the scientific expertise we we're just talking before the talk that in my undergraduate but before i switched to art history i studied polymer engineering for three and a half years which is like an engineering of making plastics 
And I guess I do have a certain acumen for scientific research and, and like dialogue and, 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 and ideas that I think just come a little bit are just kind of there for me when it comes to I don't I don't think I'm really doing a whole lot of scientific research though when I'm doing this work I read you know I will read a handful of articles published in scientific journals about a per, like what is the state of say for the second chapter I'm doing on remediation like what is the contemporary understanding and thinking about remediation and thinking of you know what are the contemporary ways of engaging with sensing particular matter I think, though, one thing, though, is that right now there are so many people doing interdisciplinary work that it's actually there in, like, so much of, like, the art history scholarship that I'm reading or the visual culture scholarship that I'm reading. Like, journals like EFLUX publish so much stuff that's working at the intersection of environmental studies, environmental justice, and, and visual culture that it's easier now more than ever, I think, to really engage with that material because it's just so present and that it doesn't actually require so much digging and I I would like to think that I have like the specialty that I'm bringing to it of this like scientific background and that comes out sometimes I do like to write about science and like write about science within the scope of, of um, within the paper as a kind of like to destabilize in a way the whatever objectivity means I think with um, to the last part of the question um, how do I know when I've hit that boundary line of where I can't go beyond? Um, and I don't know. I think like I there's like a big talk in the dissertation that like artists can like go beyond the the way that science delimits the understanding of toxicity, and I like to think that they go that they can go hand in hand that. And what I'm talking about is mostly about like a visual politics or like a sensory politics toxicity. It's not necessarily about changing the data in a way. I mean, it's changing more of like how do we interpret it? How do we engage with it? How do we think about it and feel about it differently? And how do we like present it in different ways? And then also questioning what are the very like how do we even acquire this data? It's I don't really expect it to like change every, like change the, the way that data is collected but to to question it in a way and I and I I think it's fine enough to really flow with that for me at least to just go with experimenting and, and using the artist as a way of playing with these different technologies to think differently about them and I think that's to the spirit of them is to kind of see what other relationships can emerge from it so I don't really have an answer for that per se but it's I think there's if there's any space, I think there's like a lot of freedom here to kind of explore, explore it. But I, I do understand that there is like a certain boundary line that, you know, hey, I'm not producing, you know, upper O like objective information here about about toxicity, which is the point, you know, yeah, right. Yeah, I think I have kind of like a follow up question, which is that the dis is so much about the body as a sensor and about the ways these artists are using their own bodies. Um, in contrast with like technological sensing to understand toxicity, but I was wondering if you could talk about how you are doing the same as like you're collecting data with your body um, of like knowing Karen and knowing these animals and spending time with them that she works with, as well as doing this walk for Mountain Wedge and um, having you know your personal connection to um, Puerto Rico and Munez. So yeah, I was wondering if you just talk a little bit more about 
the, your own like bodily methodologies mm-hmm. for the dissertation? Uh, I don't, you know, there's, the body is like, I think for me, a way of, of connecting with the material and talking about it from, I think, like a respectful, like, position of participation with the work. I would, I do have like a bit of a hesitation to consider, like, my own exposure within the context of their work, where their situatedness is, far exceeds my dropping in to a location that, you know, I was in L.A. for for five days, seven days. I wasn't there so long that it kind of, you know, I was, you know, what is exposure in that context? There are other forms of exposure, though, that obviously, like, all of us have been experiencing with forest fires and, and, and such, but it is always differentiated, and it's always kind of, I, I think there... I have this hesitation to go too much deeper than that because I want to highlight that I am I am um, grateful or I'm in a, a position that I am not as exposed to toxins as, say, people in West Eugene. And I think that I, th- I have to figure out a way to talk about it more. Um, certainly, like, I don't... I've never lived in Puerto Rico. Much of my family lives there and has had to move back and forth between southern Florida as a result of Hurricane Maria. And their exposure to toxins is very different and has been informed by military testing or has been impacted by military testing and has been impacted by these kind of disasters that are occurring. So I am still figuring out how to kind of communicate those things. And I think that's one thing that I'm hoping it's the last chapter I'm going to write is having to figure out how to kind of forefront that and, and consider it. Um, I think of sensing though in my, as a working methodology, as a way of, as I kind of mentioned a little bit of exceeding the visual though, and trying, even if not even just temporarily to kind of think beyond the visual with, with the works. Yeah, Emily. I know we're almost out of time and it's extra pretty for me to ask questions because I have lots of time and have already had lots of time to talk about you. About, with you about this project, but I just wanted to start off by saying this was an incredible talk. You should be very proud um, of where you're at with this, and I'm really excited about this chapter on Abelis's work. Um, it was very clear. I think you have a real knack for picking extremely rich projects to write about, and it also equally important picking equally kind of compelling aspects of the works to write about. So like. Um, I hadn't, I didn't know about this craft book by Abelis before, <laughs> so I have something I want to say about that too, and how I think it thematically is really important, which you're already like teasing out in this version. But um, before I say that, I just wanted to comment on the last two questions from um, Megan and Ray. That one thing I think we're, you know, t- have been talking about in our last meeting at length is this struggle and challenge to kind of figure out how the um, embodied. Uh, kind of situated knowledges of Joe and his own kind of subject position, you know, not just as a thinker, but as a body in mm-hmm. relationship to this research. Like, how is that to be written into the dissertation? Because in a similar way to the smog covering the mountain, um, maybe this will make more sense after my next comment, but um, there's a way in which the expectation of a certain kind of clarity, at least traditionally in academic scholarship and writing, 
um, excises and excludes exactly the kind of practices that you're writing about and the kind of scholarship that I think you're helping to try to like fight for and to, to model, which is one that insists that bottle, your bodily knowledge is part of your research. Yeah. So, but it's really hard. It's been challenging to figure out how to like toggle between these different ways of writing. Um, and so that's, that's kind of an ongoing question and that animates the project. Um, the one thing that I hadn't thought of before this presentation, um, and I don't know how helpful it is, it's really kind of moving off track of you. have so much to talk about already. <laughs> but um, I was just thinking, especially seeing this picture's perfect backdrop, of the emphasis within um, mainstream environmentalism and its depiction in photography. Mm -hmm of clarity um, and the kind of emphasis on scenic nature within conservation uh, movements um, that it seems to me that a big part of what she's doing is not only sensitizing us to smog but also sensing sensitizing us to everyday geographies mm -hmm. um, in LA which is a city that maybe more than any other city I can think of has like invisibilized nature mm. to a large extent. Yeah. So the LA River being like the classic case, yeah. right? the river that nobody sees. Um, so um, just that kind of relationship between, you know, the, the overemphasis on the scenic and the visual within kind of nature photography and uh, discourses of environment, conservation-based uh, environmentalism, and um, the way that her work is really pushing against that by insisting that we deal with the smog and with the everyday, kind of in a, a place where nature is both there but also kind of invisible, not only because of smog, but even ideologically mm -hmm. is kind of invisible. So that yeah. kind of came out, and that leads to the craft thing, which is like the kind of interest in the everyday. Yeah. So that is a really smart thing to like bring yeah. into Thanks. the conversation. <laughs> it really helps with that. Yeah, um, to the first point, yeah, we have been trying to work on, I write a lot from a personal perspective on my second chapter, I've used the soap that Karen Bolander has made, she gave me some to use and I've used it, but I struggle, the writing is just not synthesizing well between the two, so I have to figure out ways of injecting this perspective that doesn't, that just works a little bit better, that flows a little smoother, and that's just going to be through the editing. But uh, yes, I, I love, I'm glad that you kind of picked up on this disruption. Um, I think that there's a lot of stuff. I You know, the, the nature photographer that comes to mind is Elliot Porter, who is um, doing a lot of color photographs and kind of the the intimate scenes of nature that um, you know, Susan Sontag writes a, an amazing essay um, celebrating but also critiquing Porter um, and I think that Abley's is working at this juncture of landscape representation um, kind of tapping into the new topographics of tapping into Ansel Adams and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, nature photographers in a way and like bridging this gap between the San Gabriel Mountains and, and, and LA that is I think what created such a desire and wish to do so and I think that you know, it's, I mean, all the things that you brought up, they're so interesting. I, I'm still working on how to wrap this narrative together of nature photography within her work without going so deep. And I picked the Monet landscape painting and the Rothstein photographs because they're, I, like, I think they're very self-evident and they're very explanatory for the purposes of the presentation. I don't know if those are going to be the ones that I go with in, in the dissertation chapter. And I think 
figures like Adams, like Porter, may emerge as more something to really break down and kind of look and investigate alongside um, Abelis. But yeah, as you said, there's like so much, but it is it is a very interesting parallel of what she is trying to figure out, like of of what how do you represent nature, capital N nature, I suppose, within from within the city, and how has the city ultimately created the separation? 